And having had personal experience with these substances, I'm much less inclined to take the orthodox position that these are you know, simply hallucinations. I, I, I struggle. Um, the experience and, and the entities, the, their intelligence, their power, um, the inordinate complexity of this this space um, that you are taken to when you when you take DMT um, leaves me confounded. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Psychedelic drugs are weird, but DMT has to be one of the weirdest. Best known as the principal psychoactive ingredient in ayahuasca, this drug, called NN-dimethyltryptamine, occurs naturally in many plants and animals. It's commonly called the, quote, spirit molecule because while tons of psychedelics will offer spiritual insight, DMT is in a category all its own. It can allegedly transport you to another dimension where you'll be greeted by vibrating, chattering machine elves, as Terence McKenna commonly called them. Are they aliens, spiritual beings, or just hallucinations? Whatever you decide, the experience is definitely life-changing and will only last about 15 minutes. I'm Troy Farah and you're listening to Narcotica. Today in the program, I'm going to be speaking with Andrew Gallimore, a computational neurobiologist, pharmacologist, and DMT enthusiast. He is author of the new book, Alien Information Theory, and he lives in Okinawa, Japan. Andrew, welcome to the program. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, can you give listeners a little background on yourself and how you first encountered DMT? And also, uh, I'd really like to hear what your definition of DMT is, um, because I assume it's different from the typical pharmaceutical description people are familiar with. Three questions there. So, yeah, so I'm a, as you said, I'm a, I'm a computational neurobiologist. So I'm, I'm interested in um, the brain um, and the way the brain functions and the way that we can use... Um, computational techniques and mathematical techniques to kind of try and understand and even model uh, and simulate what the brain does. So I'm interested in in brain function at at, at all levels, from the kind of the way the the entire brain works, you know, this huge super network of neurons, all the way down to what's happening inside uh, individual brain cells, these complex subcellular networks of molecules that actually control the function of the cell. So that's kind of my, my current um, job title, if you like. But you know, I come from a my academic background is, is quite varied. I, I started off being really as a teenager. I guess that's where my interest in DMT comes from, fascination with the way that drugs can interface with the brain and, and cause such you know, astonishing changes. In, in consciousness and how that relates to what's going on in the brain. So I, I was very interested in, in psychedelics from, from, from a teenager, and, and that kind of brought me into when I was thinking about um, my, my higher study, you know, when I went to university, I initially drew me towards chemistry and pharmacology, that, that seemed to make sense. But as I kind of matured as a scientist and moved on to PhD and then now postdoctoral level, um, where I've been at for a few years, I became more interested in, in the actual the neuroscience. So I've I've kind of got kind of formal training in 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 what I consider to be the key the key fields, the key disciplines that are necessary for under, understanding psych, psychedelics. Um, you know, neuroscience, computational science to an extent, um, pharmacology, chemistry, all these kind of things. So, so yeah, so that's me now. Um, I currently work in Okinawa, as you said, um, but I don't, on a day-to-day basis anyway, I don't spend my time looking at psychedelics. I have kind of formal work that I do for the university, academic work, but in my spare time is what I, I devote to, to psychedelic drugs, and I'm devoting more and more of my time these days. And hopefully one day I'll be able to leave the academic job behind and, um, you know, become deinstitutionalized and actually spend all of my time thinking about psychedelics and writing about psychedelics. Um, so yeah, so DMT specifically, um, you know, I regard it as the kind of the king of psychedelics and 
describing what is DMT, you can go and, and uh, you can approach that question from a number of different angles or levels, if you like. You can you come you can come at it from the what one might say the the orthodox neuropharmacological uh, neuroscientific paradigm and say, okay, you know, DMT is a, it's a tryptamine psychedelic. It's a 5H2A partial agonist that binds to these receptors. It causes these changes in the way that the neuron functions, and these has um, global effects on cortical dynamics, which is experienced as the psychedelic state. So that's the simple kind of um, elevator pitch, if you like, describing what um, DMT does to, or what really general classical psychedelics do in terms of brain function. Um, they all seem to have this kind of common mechanism of action. But DMT is special, and I would go further when I talk about DMT. I would describe, as, as Terence McKenna did, uh, as DMT as being this, um, this reality switch, this 100% reality switch. And it, it does more than just change your, the structure of your world that you experience, but it actually flips the switch entirely and, and transforms it into an entirely different world that bears no real relationship to the the normal kind of waking world. Um, so that's and you know and going a little bit further from that, we could even say, okay, DMT is a, is a technology for facilitating you know transdimensional communication with you know normally orth hidden orthogonal dimensions of reality. But that's going even further, and and with every step away from that basic definition. You are, or I am, leaving the the orthodox neuroscientific arena, if you like, and, and heading into highly uh, contentious territory. <laughs> yes, uh, contentious <laughs> indeed. Um, speaking of which, uh, what is the prevailing attitude towards psychedelics in Japan? Uh, what, what is it like living there? And, and, and you're originally from the UK, correct? I am from the UK, yes. So I think Japan is no different from, really, is no different from other Asian countries specifically. I think the problem with the, uh, more generally, with the war on drugs is that it, it kind of, for many years now, you know, since long before I was born, it has prevented people from having any kind of rational discussion about drugs. Um, uh, in that... There is no rationale between, between, uh, behind people's opinions about certain drugs compared to other drugs. And, you know, it's become a truism now that, you know, people are perfectly happy for people to use drugs as long as it's alcohol and, and nicotine and caffeine. Uh, anything beyond that, you're in um, um, kind of a completely, this completely irrational territory where people have these opinions about these drugs. They're not really based on any kind of um, logic or evidence. They're simply based upon this kind of indoctrination uh, of children that goes on in, in all societies, really, um, certainly all kind of modern societies. But, but it, it seems to be progressing less quickly away from that in, in Asian countries. I mean, we're seeing now in... Western countries, in, in America specifically, um, the UK, <laughs> annoyingly, is, is still kind of holding on to these old ideas of, 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 of why the drugs are prohibited. But in America, at least, there's this separation, first of all, from different types of drugs in terms of their perceived harm. Um, and this has given rise to the, uh, you know, the emergence of the, the Cannabis Legalization Acts that have, have now kind of propagated and spread throughout many, many states in the United States, which, of course, is a welcome thing. Um, but in Japan, um, there is still this idea that drugs are bad, you know, and, and are very bad. And cannabis is, is not seen as any different um, to heroin or methamphetamine. In, in that, you know, it's associated with um, laziness and sluggishness and uh, a poor work ethic. You know, they have this idea that people who smoke, smoke a lot of weed are, are lazy and don't get anything done, which, of course, is completely counter to the, uh, the, the traditional and completely, you know, uh, stereotypical, but actually quite real um, Japanese work, work ethic. But with psychedelics, I think the majority of, of Japanese people probably wouldn't know much about them. So I don't think there's a strong 
within the kind of the, the Japanese population a strong opinion about them. They know about meth uh, because the Japanese have a huge problem with methamphetamine. They have done since, you know, since the war. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was discovered there. Right. Okay. Yeah. Originally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was synthesized, yeah, originally. Uh, I forget the name. Ogata, I think his name was. But anyway, uh, yeah, so they've had a huge meth problem. So they, they're, they're understandably a little bit you know, wary about methamphetamine. But it extends to pretty much all drugs, really. Yeah. Um, I think there was, a, there was a guy who was caught importing um, uh, psilocybin mushrooms in, into Japan. It's like a, it's just a package with some fresh mushrooms. And... The, the judge gave him a very harsh sentence, and, and the words that he used, he described the mushrooms as that evil drug. So, you know, you can imagine the level that they're working at here. It's not on a rational, actually, what do these drugs do? How do they work? What are the risks? What are the potential benefits? No, 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 it's like, these are evil drugs and must be stamped out. <laughs> well, that's unfortunate. Yeah, it's, it's actually one of the... When I think about, I mean, I have a permanent residence in, in Japan in, in that I can stay as long as I want. Um, I could stay forever if I wanted to. But it's one of the things that makes me hesitant about settling in Japan permanently is, is this kind of dr- draconian attitude to drugs. It's one of, you know, and the, the sense that if you got caught with magic mushrooms, you're not, you're probably going to end up in prison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, hard labor. To get back to DMT, um, yeah. you published a paper with Dr. Rich Strassman, uh, the author yeah. of the book uh, DMT, The Spirit Molecule. It's also made into a documentary. In the 1990s, Strassman administered approximately 400 doses of DMT to about five dozen patients. Uh, he's partially credited as kickstarting the so-called Second Psychedelic Revolution. Um, and together, you wrote this 2016 paper, which describes a method for making DMT trips last several hours. You know, DMT is a very short-lived experience. Um, to your knowledge, uh, has this technique been used scientifically or otherwise? The otherwise part, I can't answer because I don't know. Um, I'd be surprised if anybody would. I mean, the, the technology requires a, um, a special device. It's not just a... Some people refer to it as like a continuous drip feed, but it's not a drip it's a, it's a it's a device, a, a machine that you program that delivers a delivers the DMT with a, a specific infusion rate over time, and this can be changed. In fact, it must be changed. So you can, you know, you, you have a, a cannula that goes into the arm, um, into a vein in the arm, and this is plugged up to the machine which contains the DMT, and then you program in your infusion rate or your infusion rates uh, and that it will change over time and then this the, the machine then delivers the drug according to this um, it specifically programmed infusion rate and the fusion rate itself is based on a pharmacological uh, pharmacokinetic model that I developed a mathematical model that that, um, that models the the way that DMT distributes through the body, the way it goes into the brain, the way that it's metabolized and broken down and removed from the body. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's not trivial to do this kind of work. And the model that I wrote, that I produced, and when I wrote the paper with Rick, was really kind of proof of principle uh, in that, you know, what are the properties of DMT? You know, it occurred to me that the, the pharmacological what I think of as DMT's pharmacological peculiarities uh, make it give it certain properties that are required um, by for uh, anesthetic drugs for these these drugs that are used to to keep someone asleep during surgery and that they are very short acting as you say uh, they don't exhibit subjective tolerance um, so the effect of them doesn't diminish over time because that certainly complicates things. Um, and then, you know, they're non-toxic and they don't accumulate and all these kind of things. DMT has these special qualities that aren't shared by other, other psychedelic drugs. Um, so it occurred to me that that this this target-controlled intravenous infusion, which is what it's sort of technical name, uh, technology that's used by anesthesiologists across the world, could actually be adapted or, or repurposed, if you like, um, to actually bring someone into this, this DMT state for, for, for extended periods of time. Um, but 
as I say, you know, the model was a proof of principle. Um, it's not ready to go in the, ready to go in, into humans. So what it would require is, is first of all, some preliminary testing uh, to see how the model actually performs in humans, um, which in itself is quite complex because all people are different. People are different sizes and ages and their metabolisms differ and things like that. So, the, you know, if the model works in one person, doesn't mean it's going to work in somebody else or modifications and elaborations and uh, improvements to the model need to be made, um, which there, there are people now doing that. So there are certainly, I know of three or so groups that are actually seriously um, taking you know this model seriously and actually trying to implement it in humans. Uh, a, a purely academic team in the UK um, who are looking to use it for neuroimaging kind of studies. Um, so, you know, very, very academic um, application of the technology. And then you... there are other groups who are more interested in, can we use this to communicate with you know, alien intelligences from another dimension? <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to the aliens thing, but are you talking about um, Robin Carhart-Harris's team? Yeah, exactly. So, um, so me and Rick were kind of consultants for the... Uh, their new DMT imaging work they're doing at the moment, or well, they've just completed actually. But when they were planning that originally, they were thinking about using in, uh, continuous infusion, because you know if you want to use functional MRI in someone's brain, they have to be within the machine for a significant amount of time. Depending on the techniques that are used, there are many different kind of MRI techniques that can be used nowadays. Um, but <clears throat> So, but obviously, if you want to keep someone there and perform experiments, maybe give them tasks to do whilst they're on the influence of DMT, it would be awesome if they could have a constant level of DMT in their brain rather than this uh, steep rise to break uh, breakthrough and then this rather rapid loss of DMT in the brain. So, yeah, so they originally they were going to use our infusion model, but I think in, in the end they, they thought maybe it's a step too far at first. Um, so they, they went with just the normal bolus injection, basically, so injecting all the DMT at once. But they're, they're still working on improving our model using a, you know, a specialist pharmacokineticist who can really do a much better job than I could do on this pharmacokinetic model and actually get it to the level where it really does, you know, ready to work in kind of all different people. Um, and then who knows what will happen to it. You know, that work will be published. And then... In theory, this kind of work could be done by pretty much anybody, um, either above board or, you know, on a more kind of clandestine level. Because the, although the actual, the technology behind it is quite advanced in that, you know, there's a lot of thinking, a lot of mathematics and computation involved in actually working out the actual model, programming the machine isn't that difficult you know it's 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 relatively straightforward uh, and the kind of code that would be required to, to to program these kind of infusion devices wouldn't would be very simple to distribute uh, and you could buy the machine for maybe you know a thousand dollars or something so it's not a you know there's it's not it's not a huge outlay so you know i'm not encouraging people to do this by the way but you know you can imagine these underground laboratories or underground um chambers where people were you know undergoing these these five six day dmt trips you know and conversing with these aliens from these alternate dimensions i just want to make it really clear for listeners um yeah why would you want to make a dmt trip last several hours into the several minutes what it, and, and you talked about these people that are trying to contact other entities through it yeah, uh, yeah i mean that's i mean i'm a scientist but if I'm honest, I'm a, in a way, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a bad scientist. I don't mean that I'm bad as in I'm a, an incompetent scientist. I mean, I'm a bad scientist and that I do entertain ideas that other people would scoff at. Whether that's anti-scientific, no, I don't think it is. But I'm, I'm, I have a very open mind about these things. And having had personal experience with these substances, I'm much less inclined to take the orthodox position that these are you know, simply hallucinations. I, I, I struggle. Um, the experience and, and the entities, the, their intelligence, their power, um, the 
inordinate complexity of this this space um, that you are taken to when you when you take DMT um, leaves me confounded. You know, as a scientist, and I've written about this many times. Um, uh, you know, I cannot explain it within the kind of standard orthodox modern neuroscientific paradigm, which is why I do take seriously the idea that there might well be, um, or perhaps there is, some would say undeniably, that there are intelligences beyond the curtain, you know, one, one quantum away, as Terence McKenna said, uh, and they're waiting. And it, once you cross that threshold thinking, then... DMT takes on a new meaning. It's no longer a drug. It is a tool. It's a tool for gating access to normally hidden orthogonal dimensions of reality within which uh, a diverse panoply of, of highly intelligent, intelligent alien beings uh, reside. And that's astonishing. You know, that's incredible. And if you really believe that, that that could be true, then it's not good enough, in my opinion, to, to sit, just sit on a rug and, and smoke a little bowl of DMT, burst into that space for a few minutes, and then get dragged back down, uh, dragged back out into the consensus world after a few minutes. It's, it's impolite, you know, bare minimum, right? Um, you know? <laughs> so, but, you know, if you want to communicate with these things, bring that information, what you don't do is send someone on this roller coaster ride uh, you know, and, and, and expect them to bring back meaningful information. You know, the idea is you take them there, you let them stay there, orient themselves, get their intellective tools in order, and actually attempt to establish some kind of communication, some kind of stable communication to actually orient themselves to na navigate this space, uh, you, know, you know, perhaps even to perform some sort of um, survey of the the fauna you know you can imagine the possibilities if this is a uh, you know we're, we're, we're still discovering new parts of the ocean on, on earth and we're still discovering um, distant parts of our universe and they're throwing up surprises every day that we hear on, on the news about a, a new discovery from the Hubble telescope or something but you know here we have a, a realm that is it's not a hundred million light years away. It's not an incomprehensible distance away. It's not deep uh, with, you know, a hundred million bars of pressure away. It's right here. It's right now. You know, it, it can be accessed within 30 seconds. You can go to this place and you can stay there with this technology for as long as you want. That's, you know, if, if, if that is really what DMT is doing, uh, allowing you to communicate with, with intelligences beyond, not just be, beyond Earth, but actually beyond uh, reality, beyond this dimension of reality. That is by far, by far the most significant discovery in the history of, of humankind. There's no doubt about it. Um, so, yeah, to be on that cutting edge, not sure that that's actually what's going on, but with a strong hunch that, yeah, that really is what you're doing when you take DMT. You really are going to some place. It really does contain autonomous beings that have their own side, right? They, they are conscious. They are, they are aware of your presence, and they can communicate with you, and they're intelligent. Yeah, that's, you know, what else would you want to do with your life, for Christ's sake? <laughs> yeah, uh, the way you frame it, it does seem like it is uh, really important. And, you know, you... I like the comparison you make to the Hubble telescope because they're always finding, they're fi always discovering things that are absolutely absurd in space and in and deep deep oceanography stuff. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. I guess I you know I read a lot about DMT trips and everything, and people communicating, but it never really seems to be coherent. I mean, of course, I've also had a couple of my own experiences, but they weren't. Uh, I wouldn't say they were incredibly profound. Um, unfortunately, it's just been my own personal experience. Um, but it, like I said, it's, a lot of it doesn't seem very coherent. What, how do you decipher what's going on when there's so much variability? Um, I, 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 there's, there's so much randomness to hyperspace. Yeah, I think, so there's a, there's a couple of points there. So first of all, it's not completely inconsistent. I mean, there are 
a large number. I always make the, the analogy of, of what if you took an alien and you dropped him random at a random position on Earth, um, which is, you know, a relatively small um, spheroid kind of structure with a single surface. Um, you know, it's, you know it's, it's very, very simple compared to the kind of spaces that DMT takes takes you to, um, you know, what, and then this alien went back to his alien kin on the spaceship, what would he describe? Uh, what kind of world would he describe? Well, that would depend. Uh, you know, if he landed on the Siberian tundra, he would describe a very different world than if he landed on uh, in the middle of the street during rush hour in, in Tokyo, right? Um, and he would describe very, very different worlds. Um, so it's not surprising at all for me that when people go to these places um, they experience often you know extremely variable uh, variable kind of spaces that they go to but um, you know what's more surprising is actually the commonalities and way that people say oh have you been here if you go to these chat rooms on the internet um, places like DMT Nexus and people will often say oh have you been to this place and seen these and people go yeah yeah yeah, i've been there i've been there i've been there and people are actually now there is more and more people are this kind of underground psychedelic dmt community by you know by virtue of 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 the of the internet and this ability to actually communicate now across the world very very instantly um are actually starting to to draw up a kind of map of the territory um and people describe certain places that you know, people very often go to when they smoke DMT. Um, this, the type of entities, uh, intelligences um, that people often often meet as well. So it's it's not com- it is extremely variable, but it doesn't seem so variable that it's, it's hopeless. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I I don't count count out the idea um, that you could actually establish some kind of stable relationship with with some kind of not kind of sexual relationship some people go there though believe me um but <laughs> has some kind of communicative relationship with with these entities yeah yeah but you know it's it's a lot of it's it, it it's hypothetical at this stage we don't really know what's going to happen when when you send someone to this kind of space for these long periods of time i want to talk about your book uh your upcoming book right. alien information theory um you wrote illustrated and typeset the whole thing yeah. Uh, and you describe it as a textbook from the future. And I have to say, it's it's really beautiful. I mean, this is kind of a book that you could buy just for the photos. Um, I've seen a proof of it. I haven't read it all yet. Uh, but I just wanted to read a short excerpt from the introduction. You, okay. Fabulous. Uh, you write, um, As a scientist and writer with a passion for psychoactive drugs, especially those of the psychedelic variety, I've spent most of my adult life so far thinking about the way these molecules interact with the brain to generate their remarkable effects on consciousness. Although, to a reasonably satisfying extent, this thinking often led to something approaching understanding. When confronted by DMT, my scientific mind was left reeling and utterly confounded. I simply could not explain it. There was nothing within the pages of the modern neuroscience literature that could have prepared me for DMT, and my first experience with this astonishing molecule triggered what I knew would be a lifelong dedication to its study. So was your motivation to write this book kind of an attempt to understand your own personal DMT experiences? Um, yes and no. I think I've been writing about DMT now specifically since uh, 2012. And my thinking about it has, has evolved over that, that time. I started up, I wrote a paper in 2012 called Building Alien Worlds, uh, which is also the name of my website buildingalienworlds.com, um, where I, I, I try to approach DMT from a neuroscientific perspective and try to actually say, you know, could we really explain what DMT is doing in terms of uh, modern neuroscience? And this led me into thinking about the way the brain constructs reality, uh, because, of course, the world around you is constructed by your brain, in that your phenomenal world, the world as experienced, is constructed by your brain, how that relates to What's going on outside your brain is a different matter. Um, but, you know, whether you are awake or dreaming or uh, the height of a DMT trip, you are, the world is always constructed by your brain. Uh, and so this kind of led me into some really, really fascinating areas of neuroscience and, and led me to, to actually to kind of critically appraise this, 
this orthodox assumption, which is really what it is, that DMT causes highly complex hallucinations, period, right? Um, to actually analyze that, does that actually make any sense? Does that make any sense knowing what we know about the way the brain constructs our world? And uh, I realized that it, it didn't and that there was more to it um, in that, you know, the brain... As I always say, the brain wasn't dropped to earth as this pristine world-building machine. It was uh, the brain evolved to construct this model of reality that you experience as your phenomenal world. And this world um, is the only world your brain knows how to build. Um, it's evolved to, to construct this normal consensus phenomenal world that we're, that we're all familiar with, your own very personal world, uh, but a world that we all agree upon to some extent. Um, so there's no way that the brain should know how to construct this alternate model of reality with such um, you know, crystalline clarity and precision um, it's, and, and just you know, complexity. It seems I can never understand how the brain can do that um, unless there is some way, some means of the brain receiving information from, from a normally hidden source. Uh, which we would recognize as perhaps the DMT space. And so, so I, 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 I kind of spent some time thinking about that and writing about that from that perspective. And then I, I became very interested in um, kind of working with the idea, thinking, okay, let's imagine that DMT really does allow you to communicate with alien intelligences from another reality. Can I explain that using neuroscience? Can I actually keep one foot clearly within um, what, you know, what's known about the way the brain works and actually try and explain what's going on with DMT. And so that's really what my work uh, with regards to DMT has been, has been doing over these, these last few years. And then, as I write in the introduction, um, I, I return to a, one of my favourite mechanisms, uh, which again is in the introduction and on the back of the book, which is the main thing to understand is that we are imprisoned in some kind of work of art. Uh, and as I write in the introduction, you know, that thing, it's a very, very strange thing for someone to say, you know. Uh, what does he mean by we're imprisoned in a work of art? You know, how could that be possible? And so, but I kind of had this, that little aphorism in, in the back of my mind for a number of years. And I, I began, began to think about what that really could mean in that, you know, perhaps DMT is this technology that's actually been embedded within our reality uh, that allows us to communicate with, with this hyper-intelligence, if you like, that is in some way responsible for the structure of our reality. Um, and that's really what the book is about. So the book is more than just a book about DMT um, and the way DMT works, although there's you know, a, few, you know, a lot of that in there. That's necessary for the, for the complete picture. But the idea is, you know, let's imagine that our reality is structured in a certain way. And I, I use the model of digital physics for this because I think it's, it's the most, it doesn't have to be digital physics, uh, but it's the simplest to explain and that the fundamental ground of reality in digital physics is information. Which I take a lot. I take great pains to, to to explain in the book exactly what I mean by information and and the way that information patterns of information can complexify from the ground of reality um, and through many layers of hierarchical organisation to to form the extremely complex structures that we see around us, including ourselves. So our world is constructed from information that is constructed by our brain, and our brain itself is a complex orchestration, an information complex, I call it, which is built from simpler um, patterns of information that we refer to as neurons, and then down to the, the molecules and the atoms, and you get layers of this complexification of information. Um, and, and the reason this is a really neat way of thinking about reality is it because you know at the ground of reality um, you have something that can be encoded um, which means that the the ground of reality the rules that dictate the way information complexifies what we would recognize as the laws of physics can also be encoded uh, which means that our entire universe uh, our entire world our entire reality um, can be encoded using some kind of fundamental code and this fundamental code generates the fundamental structure of our reality, perhaps with many, 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 many different variants. Um, and then these variants of our fundamental reality, what physicists might call the, uh, the multiverse, uh, would 
evolve and self-complexify over time. And then a very, very small fraction uh, would actually um, give rise to complex complexity, um, stable complex structures such as living organisms, such as ourselves. And so we find ourselves uh, the product of, you know, built from information, but information that is complexified uh, over many, many l levels and layers of organization. Um, and the idea is that you would have a, a hyper-intelligence that would generate the initial code that would create all of these universes, and then we will find ourselves within one. And what DMT is, is it's a kind of tool that's been implanted or embedded in our reality to enable us um, to, first of all, to communicate with that um, high-dimensional space that essentially is, was the you know, the genesis of our reality, uh, and then eventually perhaps even to transfer our consciousness, to tra transcribe the informational structure of our consciousness into this higher dimensional space. So uh, I call this the game, uh, in that it's the game of uh, the, the cosmic, this huge kind of cosmic game, in that you, you emerge within this lower dimensional space, and then over time you become intelligent enough, you reach this certain level of cognitive um, uh, sophistication and technological acumen that you can um, identify this technology. So the technology is everywhere. Um, it's you know it's in basically pretty much every plant. You know at the varying levels of con uh, concentration, but it's you know it's scattered across across the natural world. Uh, but it takes a certain degree of intelligence, quite a high intelligence, to actually identify DMT, identify the technology, to isolate it in a form that can be used and then to develop it as a technology um, using perhaps this continuous infusion technology that, that I've developed. Um, and then the idea would be that you know, using this technology, humans would actually be able to transfer their, their lower dimensional consciousness into this uh, higher dimensional space. And essentially we would be, you know, hyperdimensional citizens of hyperspace, if you like. Uh, so it's kind of like interdimensional citizenship is really the kind of the name of the game. Uh, and that's really what the book is about. So there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of speculation, but it's kind of, it's a vision of reality, if you like. I don't mean like a vision as in I saw it during a DMT trip. Uh, although certainly there are aspects of this, this way of thinking about the world that de definitely did come from DMT. Um, you know, when you speak to people that are smoked a lot of DMT, they often say, oh, I saw the, the fundamental structure of reality. I saw um, these fundamental pieces, these cubes or something you know, that were interacting and organizing and stuff. And they actually they seem to get this impression um, about the fundamental structure of reality, this kind of digital nature of reality. Um, yeah, so that's the book, really. Um, all about, all the way from how the universe was constructed, all the way through to how we might escape it at the end. Well, it's awesome, and I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, I have to admit, uh, I'm a bit skeptical of some of the premises in the book, but I do find them really interesting and unique and worth considering. You know, I, I'm not Joe Rogan, and I don't think you're Alex Jones, because um, <laughs> you know he was, of course, on the show recently yeah, yeah, saying yeah, something about. Yeah. I, I didn't actually watch it myself. I had uh, better things to do. But I wonder if you maybe encounter a lot of stigma or resistance some of these to some of these theories um, that smoking yeah. DMT can allow you to, smoke, to, to talk to aliens. Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some people think, I think, fortunately for me, most people are just fascinated more than anything. Um, and and they find the whole thing rock, completely bizarre. Um Actual, what I would call, I mean, there's some kind of intellectual antagonism from, from some people, but most people aren't openly hostile. I mean, there are exceptions to that. People think, you know, you, you, know, and you get the occasional comment on your YouTube channel about people telling that you're talking nonsense and stuff, and they will then offer their own explanation for things. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I don't really care to an extent. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I... I wrote the book as I did, as I, as I explained in, to, in, in the introduction, which you know, if, you, if you're going to buy the book, read the fucking introduction, for goodness sake, because it kind of explains my position. Uh, there are a number of ways you can go about this kind of thing. You can say, you know, the one extreme, you can say, you can give a comprehensive, uh, balanced, scientific 
critical analysis of the evidence, right, for this and for that. That's a very technical book. It's interesting, for sure. Um, but, you know, that's just one way to approach it. The opposite end is to write a science fiction novel. Uh, and just, you know, that you're creating a world, that's the way it works. So this is why I call it a textbook from the future, is I wanted to sit in this very strange place between a, uh, a scientific textbook and a science fiction novel, in that it's written like a, it's written, there's nothing in there that I've made up, in, in that the science isn't made up, but I've taken pieces uh, and, and perhaps arranged them in a way and, and I've been quite definitive about certain things um, that some people would say, hey, hold on, you know, digital physics isn't accepted. It's a fringe area of physics. Yeah, it's a fundamental theory of physics, uh, but it's, it's, you know, most people are into string theory, right? So you need to do it do with strings, you know. So, yeah, there is, um, you know, I, I decided I would write it as if everything in the book was 100 percent. No, as if as if I was an alien that knew the structure of reality and exactly everything, the way that everything works. Then I imagine how would I write this textbook and explain to Earthlings, if you like, um, how 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 the whole system works. So that's that's the kind of um, narrator, if you like, that that tells this story. It's not it's not my normally critical, balanced scientist. It's somebody that has said, okay, let's imagine this is true. Um, how would this appear? How would you write about this? How would you explain it? Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's admittedly, it's a strange book. And I'm aware that some people are going to come to the book and it be go, oh, that's ridiculous. You know, how can he make that claim? It's absurd. How's he going to back that up? You know, and I'm going to get a lot of antagonism. And I really, I am expecting that. I really do expect that. I expect some people will say, you know, this is an irresponsible book. Um, you know, people had some pretty nasty things to say about Rick Strasman. After his study, you know, I mean, Rick Strassman, you know, the most, you know, the most important DMT researcher, you know, in history, really, and that, as you say, he really sparked uh, this, you know, this this new sort of psychedelic renaissance. Um, so yeah, he's he deserves huge respect for that. But he you know, he made some claims in his book. You know, he said that DMT was produced by perhaps produced. He speculated the DMT was produced by the pineal gland and that it's released. Uh, a death, uh, that it marks the exit of the soul from the body and this kind of thing. Um, and then people kind of read the book and then thought, oh, that, that's true or that's, that's the way it works. And then people then have to say, actually, no, 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 no. There's no evidence that the pineal produces psychedelic quantities of DMT. There's no evidence that DMT causes dreams. Again, that's another idea that goes back to a guy called Jace Calloway who wrote a paper back in the, I think it was in the 80s. But anyway, it was a while ago. Um, he speculated that perhaps tryptamine, endogenous tryptamines were, uh, were responsible for dreams, which I don't think is true at all. Um, the DMT state is nothing like regular dreaming. It has no relationship in terms of its phenomenology or structure. Um, yeah, so, but with me, I've gone even further. You know, I've written a book. If you don't read the introduction, realize where I'm coming from. Then people are gonna, you know, tear it apart and say, "Oh, this is this is bullshit. This is nonsense." You know, how dare you say that? You know, you're gonna, you're gonna, and, and there is a, a small risk, I guess, that you're gonna, you're gonna, uh, you're gonna um, spawn this new generation of people that, that think everything that I've written in this book is is 100% proven or something. But yeah, fuck it, you know. It's, <laughs> I just I wrote the book and it was very intuitive the way what the way I wanted to, to do it and it's it's all come together with as I say with sort of seven years of thinking about DMT and writing about DMT and then this coherent narrative appeared uh, in my head and I thought fuck it I'm just going to write this down and produce this book and this is the result. <laughs> well, I appreciate that you're not an evangelist about some of the more out there claims of the book. Um, but what evidence, I'm sure you go over this in detail in the book, but what, what evidence do you provide for people that are a little more skeptical and think that, you know, a DMT, a DMT trip is just a hallucination. It's, it's nothing real. Well, I mean, so we can approach this from a number of different angles. So I guess, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, there's, there's, we know how we know about the way that the world is constructed. We know the way that the phenomenal world is constructed, which I go into a lot of detail. Um, 
in that it is constructed from information, and that information is is, is generated by the brain. Um, and this applies, you know, under all circumstances. So the brain learns to construct this model of reality over these millions of years of evolution, basically. So the fact that you're able to go to these places that are have no relationship whatsoever to the consensus world, uh, that are, you know, they're not kind of maelstroms of, of confusion and disorder, but they are, you know, once you get past the initial phase of the experience, these are kind of stable, solid, you know, reasonably, you know, stable, um, complex, well-formed structures that are you know, replete with this huge range, diverse range of, of intelligences. That is very, very difficult to explain as, as a neuroscientist, because I t cannot explain how the brain knows knows how to do that. Why, when you ingest such a simple molecule, the brain would suddenly reorganize it, its behavior um, to construct these um, you know, these astonishingly complex um, environments. So that's that's the key thing for me. Um, um, is is simply under you know thinking about the way that the brain works. And that's something I, I mention, but I don't spend a lot of time. You know, if you read some of my other papers, um, particularly my Building Alien Worlds paper, which is really my probably my most important and my first paper that uh, where I spoke about DMT, um, I go into I spend a lot more time discussing these things, um, but. You know, it's it's one has to be um, go into enough detail, but not to get bogged down. You know, there's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, so, in, you know, 230 odd pages. You know, we go from the fundamental structure of reality all the way through how to escape this universe. You know, and, and a lot in between. Um, and and as 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 you said as well, every page is designed and typeset and illustrated uh, with this pixel art. You know, you can see it. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of it's it's very very time consuming and um, yeah so I wanted some paper book that contained all the information but was reasonably concise yeah if that makes sense yeah so if you are going to talk to these uh, these beings in this hyperdimensional omniverse as you put it um, what kind of message would you want to bring to them or or what are some of the messages that people have heard from the other end. Um, that's a really good question. So, I mean, people often ask, you know, what, what would you actually ask them or what kind of information would you want to get back? Uh, you know, I often talk about ex doing experiments in this place. Um, people don't normally, haven't really discussed that in the, you know, what, what kind of experiments would you do? Um, would you approach this with a, a scientific mind and, and try to, um, you know, establish the, the reality of these beings. I mean, that's perhaps one of the most, um, I guess if you were one of these intelligences, perhaps slightly more insulting uh, ideas, is that these these little lower dimensional sprites would pop into your world and try to do experiments on you or ask you to answer questions to prove that you exist, you know, it would be. But that's what people have proposed, right? The idea that you would go into the space and that you would, you would give these beings very, very difficult mathematical problems and say, okay, what's, you know, what are the prime factors of this number? Um, and that they would go, oh, it's these, this, and this. And you go, ah, correct, you know, you're, you, you exist. And you say, we fucking know we exist. We created you. Um, you know, so it's, uh, so yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's, um, that's the kind of thing that needs to be worked out is, uh, yes, we want to go there. Yeah, we want to communicate, but I think it would take the, the expertise of people from a diverse number of fields. You would need linguists, you would need anthropologists, you would need perhaps even sociologists of a certain ilk, at least. Um, you would need mathematicians, uh, you would need neuroscientists, you would, you know, psychologists, you know, you would need people to sit around a table and say, okay, we've established that there's this extremely intelligent uh, alien species that are sitting behind this veil. Um, we have access to them. We have stable access. What are we going to ask them? What kind of information are we interested in? What do we want to do with that information? Do we just want information that, you know, in, in, kind of in the vein of what people think about with extraterrestrials, right? The idea that they would give us um, free energy propulsion 
technologies or things like that. You know, fabulous, great stuff. But I, you know, I think when you're dealing with beings from outside this this reality, even that kind of, well, you know, the, are they? Is that the kind of information really that we we are best attempting to harvest? Um, I think the first thing would be to actually do as you would with anyone when you first meet a new species. You don't go to somewhere. You don't trample through the Amazon rainforest and find a new tribe and say, hey, you know, how the fuck did you build that? You go, hi, who are you? You know, um, tell, tell me about yourself. You know, where did you come from? You know, you, know, you would be, those kind of things. That would be my intuition. Now, there might be experts on these things who say, no, 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 that's not how you approach it. But these are the kind of people we need, right? It's like, how do you establish communication um, with a, a, a hyper-intelligent being from an alternate dimension? And I think that's not, not a trivial question to answer, unfortunately. But yeah, it's really interesting. It's really making me think about things in a totally different way. Um, that's the idea. I, I guess I would consider myself like a psychonaut or whatever, but, you know... Uh, I'm really interested in these realms, I should say, but I'm skeptical. And as you should be, yeah, as you should be. But there's difference, of course, between being skeptical, as, as you are, and people who are just, you know, dismissive. Yeah. And and they're they're not particularly interesting to talk to. You know, until until you know the great convincer, as Terence McKenna always pointed out, the great convincer is, is ten minutes and a glass pipe. You know, that's the only way. You know. You know, that's the only way. And then people very often will change their fucking minds pretty damn quickly. Yeah, I agree. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about or let people know? Um, no, other than the book is out on April 16th. Um, and you can order by my website. Um, but there's not many copies left. Um, it's easier, actually, because I have to send them all the way from Okinawa and it's complicated. But anyway, yeah, or you can go to Amazon and you can order the pre-order the book now, um, globally, basically. Um, you should also mention uh, you can find Andrew on Twitter at Alien Insect or uh, buildingalienworlds.com. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today. It's really great to talk to You're you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Narcotica. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Moraff, Zachary Siegel, and myself, Troy Farah. Our co producer is Aaron Ferguson, and our theme music is by Glassboy. Additional music by Aaron Ferguson. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast or on Narcocast.com. If you like the program and you want to support us, there are a few ways you can help. Tell a friend about us. Most podcasts become popular via word of mouth or give us a decent rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Second, you can become a patron at Patreon.com slash Narcotica where you'll get access to exclusive bonus content and help us pay our bills a little bit. We are so grateful for the people that make this program possible. We want to stay ad-free, and you guys help us do that. Thank you so much. If you've encountered otherworldly beings on DMT, why don't you tell us about it? Shoot us an email at tips at narcocast.com. That's all for now. Take care.